It has always been the plan of God to have a people that would be conformed to His image. To be in His likeness, just like He did with Adam and Eve. In the garden, man chose to sever that likeness. That image can only be restored when man chooses to be born again by trusting in Christ alone. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, 5, and we're going to read Titus 3, 5 later. You'll see that. Once that occurs, we can now begin the process of living in His likeness on a practical level. When you become born again, that image is permanently restored. You are now a three-part being again. So positionally speaking, what I mean by that is when God looks down from heaven and sees you, He sees, all right, my children, they are restored in my image. They have my likeness. They have my image restored in them. But we still sin on a daily basis, don't we? Whether in thought, word, or deed. So practically speaking, we are not walking in His image and likeness every single day. So God has to do something about that. He doesn't want to just leave us in the state that we're in when we get saved. He wants to make us more practically like Him. That's what today's about. And you see, we will never reach sinless perfection on this earth, in this flesh. But the Lord is still in the business of conforming us into the image of His dear Son. Reader for Ephesians 1.4. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. God has always had a plan that He would have a people group that is holy. A people group that would worship Him and be in His image and that they would be perfected or matured in their walk. Now finish out your outline here. Not only did, is He still in the business of conforming us to the image of His dear Son, God promised that He will finish finish to fill in your blank what he started philippians 1 6 that's right did god start a good work in you did he save your soul i guess proper terminology of that would be did he save your spirit did he restore you in the image of his dear son are you a three-part being again if that's the case even though you still sin and have mess-ups on a daily practical level, God is not through with you. He's going to finish the work that He started, and He will do it until the, he, the day He returns. That's what Philippians 1.6 is saying. So go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll break this down. We're going to finish godliness next week, so whatever we don't finish on the study sheet today, we'll get to next week. There's a lot of passages I want us to see here because this really is, uh, you know, not only is it a devotional application, obviously, there's a lot of doctrine here. There's a lot of biblical teaching that maybe you didn't realize what the plan of God was the moment you got saved. Maybe it wasn't made clear to you in discipleship. Hopefully today and next week will help solidify that. So on your outline, we see in point number one, and to patience add godliness. The definition... Strong's defines it as devout, holiness, in God's likeness. I like this one here. It means worship done well. Worship done well. You know what I think about when I hear that? Matthew 25, 21. You know what that verse says? When we get to heaven one day as Christians, 
and we stand before Him, the words that every faithful Christian wants to hear come out of the mouth of Jesus Christ with regards to our service, you know what it is? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Worship is tied in with service. If you want to worship God well, it doesn't have anything to do with singing on Sundays or singing here on Wednesday nights. Worship, that's a term that's used for that nowadays, but no, you look at the first word, usage of that word worship, it's in Genesis 22. It's when Abraham is going up into the mountain to sacrifice his only son. He was willing to lay down that which was most precious to him in order that God might receive glory. That's worship. Worship well done, it's tied to faithful service in Matthew 25, 21. You want to be in God's likeness practically, you want to be holy, you got to be a servant. Not only that, Colossians 3.10 says, And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge, after the image of him that created him. So that's where we see the image, the likeness of God, being more like God on a regular basis. That's godliness. You know, I love the context of this. He's talking about, I think we just looked at this not too long ago. It was Wednesday, I know it was probably this Wednesday night, where you put off the old man. You put off those old ways of thinking. Put off those old habits that you used to do before you were saved. You shouldn't have this ongoing, continual struggle with the same exact sins that you did before you were saved. Now, I get it. There are going to be sins that you had before you were saved that are still going to trickle in with you. But are you seeing God make improvements in your life? Are you seeing God eradicate and get rid of certain things that don't bear fruit in your life as He plucks those branches off? We all have a sin that does so easily beset us in Hebrews 12. But if you still see the same amount or if you see sin growing in your life that wasn't there even before salvation and all those stuff before salvation, the old man, that old nature, it's still here and it keeps brewing and festering. One of two things, you're either not walking with God or you're never saved to begin with. If that's the case, Bible says examine yourself daily to see whether you be in the faith. Both salvation-wise, but also are you walking with God? We need to evaluate those things on a daily basis. He says to put off the old man and put on Christ. And how do we do that? You can write down Titus 3.5. We had mentioned it in our introduction. This is what salvation is. I love it. It's very, very clear. Salvation is not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration. That means your dead spirit that we've all inherited from Adam, it comes alive again. Think of a generator, something that brings forth power, something that brings forth life, something that brings forth energy. To regenerate means to be born again and renewing of the Holy Ghost. The moment you call out to, upon Christ to save you, He gives you His Holy Ghost. And that Holy Ghost, the Bible says in Ephesians 2, it quickens your dead spirit inside of you. That makes sense? Again, it's a little doctrine heavy here. This is really what it means to be born again. And it happens the moment of the point of decision where you call upon Christ and recognize your need for a Savior. Now, so here's the thing. By doing this, God puts us back into the threefold image of God. Body, soul, and a renewed, regenerated spirit, just like God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. We're now back in His image and in His likeness. 
Do you understand that this is something that only could have come after the cross of Christ? After Jesus went and died and took your place on the cross? Because from Him doing that, He paid the price of sin, not just for everyone after the cross, but everyone before the cross in the Old Testament. That's the reason why you never once see the word godliness show up in the Old Testament. Not once. The word godly, yes. But godliness, which means in His likeness. People in the Old Testament were like God, godly. But godliness, likeness, godlikeness, that was not possible in the Old Testament. Anybody remember what David said in Psalm 51? It was after his sin with Bathsheba. And he cried out to God. He said, God, remove not what? Thine Holy Spirit from me. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit just descended upon a man and a woman of faith. He didn't permanently indwell a man or woman of faith like he does in the New Testament after the cross. This is huge. Because again, as we touched on earlier, I think it was on Wednesday night again, Ephesians 1.13 talks about the Holy Spirit of God. When we receive Christ, He permanently indwells us and He seals us. And that seal can't be broken by any man, any woman, any sin that you commit. Or even if you walk away from God, it can't be broken. He seals it. The Spirit of God cannot be removed from us regardless of whatever sin we commit. Now, I say all of this, and I'm going through all of this picture to show you guys there's two different kinds of holiness. There's two different kinds of godliness in the Bible. You have what's known as positional justification. What do I mean by that? Again, as I've already stated, if you're in here and you're saved, you are in God's likeness. You possess godliness because you're in His image again. You've been restored. That's how God positionally sees your position here on earth. Maybe you've heard Pastor Tom give the analogy before. Here's me, and here's how God sees me. That's what this is talking about. I wanted to put it in a little bit of a different way for you. So yes, we all add to our faith godliness at the moment of salvation, but that's not the focus of what we're going to be looking at the rest of today and next week. Instead, what we're going to be looking at is the practical sanctification, being set apart more and more away from this world, away from the way we used to be, and more like God. Because we already established we sin on a practical daily basis, don't we? You know what's beautiful? God is not just content with this first part. He wants every single person to get saved and to be in His image as a son or daughter of God. But it doesn't end there. He wants to take your life, the situations that you find yourselves in, and He wants to make you more like God on this earth, on this planet, during this time, before we get to heaven and we have a perfect body where we never sin against God again. That's what he's in the business of. That really summarizes the entire Christian life. Do you see now how big this character quality is and how important it is that we add it to our faith on a daily, practical level? 
That's what this is all about. Practical godliness. And you might be thinking, well, I've heard it so many times before, and I've heard it so often that we're never going to achieve sinless perfection here on this earth. I'm always going to be a sinner. So, you know, what's the point of trying to strive for this? Every time I try to strive for it, I always get frustrated, and I always feel like I'm not good enough. I always feel like I'm not a strong Christian enough. So what's the point? I get it. You are never going to achieve spiritual perfection, spiritual, perfect spiritual maturity. But it's what God wants. He wants to perfect, the Bible uses that word, perfect you. That means to mature you so that more and more you look so much like Him that you are godly. You have godliness on this planet, in this life, before you get to heaven. Shouldn't that be our goal? Even though we know we're never going to achieve it, shouldn't that be all of our heart's desire to try to look and be as much like God as possible? If that's our desire, He'll take care of the rest. And we'll see that. So, that's the Strong's definition. But letter B, this is where it gets into more of the practical in God's likeness. It is a careful observance of the laws of God and performance of His duties, proceeding from love and reverence of His character and commands. To sum it up, Christian obedience. That's the day-to-day -day godliness. That's how you add to it. So, let's take a look at what God has to say about this throughout the Bible. Point number two, I already kind of stressed the idea that this is the eternal plan. And wouldn't you know it, like all of these character traits in letter A, Godliness is born out of the trials and sufferings of patience. Patience. Hebrews chapter 12. Follow along with me in verse 7. He says, If ye endure chastening, that word chastening, it means to make pure. You know how you make someone pure? It's through spankings. <laughs> I want my sons to obey me. I got to spank them. I have to purify their thoughts. They have a selfishness where they want to do what they want to do. And I need to correct that in them and train them up in the way that they should go. That's what this entire passage is talking about here. He says, if ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, if there's no correction in your Christian life, look what he says. Whereof are all partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. You see, this is another thing that the book of 1 John talks about. If you don't have anything in your life that shows God is correcting you, correcting that thought process that you have, correcting that attitude that you have, correcting that behavior that you have, that is not right, not glorifying unto God, if there's no pattern of that in your life, evaluate whether you be in the faith. Because he's just saying here, if you claim to be a son of God, but you don't have correction or trials in your life, you're probably not a son of God. Verse 9. Furthermore, we've all had fathers of our flesh which corrected us. He's speaking physically in the family unit. And we gave them reverence shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. You know what? 
even though I know when I correct and discipline Wyatt or Ryder that it is for their good because they're going to learn to obey mommy and daddy, the truth of the matter is, it's also for mine and Heather's sanity too. If we just had unruly children running around without any kind of discipline whatsoever, and if you want to know what that looks like, take a missions trip to Ireland. You will find out firsthand what it looks like to have a nation that is run by children. By the way, prophesied in Scripture, where a child shall be king in the book of Isaiah. Not talking about Christ, by the way. Scary. If Heather and I had a house like that, we would have no peace. None at all. So that's what he's saying here when he says that they did it after their own pleasure, for their own sake of mind and sanity. But he, God, back in verse 10, he does it for our profit. Now don't miss this. That we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. Was it fun for you guys when you got spanked by mom and dad as a kid? No. It's not joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth or gives forth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. You know, another unique thing about that word chastening, it's not just talking about correcting and spanking. It's also talking about training. Any of you guys here ever, like, have horses? What do you have to do when the horses are young? Train them. Break them. Yeah. Break them and train them. Now, does it necessarily mean that the horse did anything wrong? No. You just need to work with them. It's the same thing with a dog. For those of you who have been young enough to help train up a dog. A dog may not have done anything wrong that gets a rolled up newspaper on the butt of the nose. But you know what you do? When a dog is still learning and they don't know its boundaries, sometimes you have to give them just a little bit of pain. Same thing with horses. Just a little bit of pain to let them know. Nope. Nope. It's the same thing that we did with our boys. Before they got to the age where they realized, I am disobeying, I'm making a choice to disobey mommy and daddy, I remember Wyatt, as soon as he started walking, what's he want to do? He wants to touch things that mommy and daddy didn't want him to touch. So we would just give him a little flick on the finger, a little flick on the hand, same thing we did with Ryder, to train him, that's a no-no. So whenever he goes to touch that, he, he associates that with, oh, that gives me pain if I do that. Understand, I'm not disciplining him, but I'm training him up in the way that he shall go. So even though we use this passage of Scripture to talk about spanking when you disobey and you sin, this is also a passage that God uses to put you through trials and testing that we were talking about the last two weeks. He's testing you and trying you. It's Him training you up in the way that you should go. It doesn't seem joyful when you're going through the trials that we talked about the last two weeks, does it? No. But look again at the end of verse 10, what you're doing. He's making you a partaker of His holiness. You are being more like Him. That's what these times are for. Not only does it bring about patience, but it makes you more like God. That is the end goal. Jump over to Romans chapter 8. I really hope they get the air conditioning fixed in this wing. 
I should probably also stop drinking coffee. <laughs> All right, Romans chapter 8. Contemplating doing a study on the book of Romans soon. This is like the third passage we've gone to in this study alone where I'm like, oh, there's so much to unpack. So look with me. So the beautiful thing about Romans 8 is this is talking about benefits that you and I get as Christians. There are a lot of churches today that try to take this passage, try to take this chapter, and they butcher it, and they cut it up, and they try to say that it has doctrinal applications that have absolutely nothing to do with salvation. The book of Romans actually covers salvation in chapters 4 and 5. This chapter is all about a Christian's benefits now that he is saved. That is very important to keep in mind with one of the verses that we're going to come up here. And we already actually read one of the other verses in Ephesians about it. But look at me in verse 18. I reckon, Romans 8, 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You might want to stew on that verse later on today. If any of you in here are going through a trial of anything right now or going through a time of testing, maybe you're just even having a rough week. Friends making fun of you. Just thoughts attacking you. Again, feeling not worthy, feeling unloved. If you're going through that right now, reread and reread and memorize and meditate on this verse. Do you realize what he said there? Whatever it is you're going through, compared to an eternity in heaven, the sufferings you're going through aren't even worthy to be compared to that. That's how great and how glorious it's going to be one day. And so, endure the chastening of the Lord. Endure. I've said it before. If you're in here and you're saved, you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, this life is the only hell you will ever experience. That's it. As we just finished on Wednesday night, we know we don't have much time left anyways. So endure. Whatever it is you're going through, whether it's a bad home life, whether it's personal attacks with friends, whether it's people in this own room, endure. God is here. He gave you his example of what he endured on the suffering of the cross. And he's here to help you. We are here to help you. If that's the case, endure. Because one day your relief is coming. And he goes on and he talks about how, man, all of creation is just groaning. Jump down to verse 22. He's like, the entire creation, all of the world is groaning and travailing and pain together until now. You know that Jesus Christ said, he's like, if these people don't praise me, the rocks would cry out and praise me. He said that in the Gospels. Creation speaks. We may not be able to hear it, but God does. Creation is speaking. They're groaning because of this, this world and the sin that has completely immersed itself all throughout this planet. It's groaning for a new heaven and a new earth. We'll talk about that in a few weeks in Revelation on Wednesday nights. But he says, verse 23, Not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. As I already mentioned, what this verse is talking about is when we get to heaven, especially after the rapture of the church, we're going to get new bodies. New bodies that are like His, in His likeness and image, 
where we'll never sin again. We'll never think a wicked thought again, ever. We will never speak sinful words or hurtful words to anybody else ever again. Sufferings this time are not worthy to be compared in the glory of that day. Sorry, little inside joke. You're going to get a new body one day. Do you feel it? Do you feel the groaning? We're like, oh, why did I mess up again? How did I get into that sin again? Why can't I just keep my mouth shut? That one wasn't directed at you, but it did just come up. So I'll let the Spirit convict you on that one if that's the case. Your body's groaning for that perfection. Your body's growing for that, or groaning for that maturity where you are like Him and you'll never sin again. That's what he's talking about here. Jump down to verse 25, though. But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with, what? Patience. Patience. Wait for it. Endure. Again, last week's bleeds right perfectly into this one. And he even talks about, I love verse 26, likewise, with all of this groaning, with all this pain that we're going through, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. You ever have those moments where you're like, God, I don't know how to pray here. I don't know what to pray for for this person. I don't know what to pray for here with me, especially in this situation. I mean, I know what I want to say, but God, can you just, can you just answer your son's prayers for me, knowing that in John 17, he's praying for me right now, even as we speak. Can you just answer his prayers? That's what the Spirit does. He makes intercession for us. Verse 27, He searcheth the hearts, knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because He maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. There are some things we pray that aren't in the will of God. The Holy Spirit will correct it. That's what He does. He helps you. And look at 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. I love that verse. Did you check it out? All things work together for good. Did you look at it? Will you look at this? All things work together for good. All things. Everything works together for good in your life. How is that possible? I heard it put this way, specifically talking about this verse. Imagine you just got out of a humongous car crash and you've been lying unconscious on the side of the road for you don't even know how long. You're parched, you're dehydrated, and you're famished, you're starving to death. You trek your way in, you finally find a town, and you come up to the first house you see, and you knock on the door. And the guy opens up, and you're like, dude, here's everything that just happened. I'm dying here. Could you maybe give me some sustenance? Like, yeah, man, sure. Come on in. Come on in. He sits you down at his table, and he gets a big bowl, and he just cracks some raw eggs in there. You're like, you going to scramble these and cook these for me? It's like, oh, you said you were hungry. You said you were famished. I gave you some eggs. Dude, this isn't going to work for me. If I consume these eggs raw, I could get sick. I need something more sustainable, please. Okay, all right. So he goes back to his cupboard, and he gets out flour, and he dumps some flour into the bowl. You're like, okay, what's this guy doing? You're like, dude, this isn't going to help for me. You're going to kill me here. I can't eat raw flour. It's like, all right, all right. He goes out and gets a measuring spoon. He gets two cups of sugar, and he just gives the measuring spoon to you. Like, this should help you, right? This should meet your need, correct? No. What is going on here, dude? I, all right, you know what? I obviously came to the house of a psycho. He's probably just teasing me before he kills me and eats me. I'm like, no, I'm, I cannot consume this. You are not helping me with my present situation. 
All right, one last thing. Goes and gets a box of Bisquick and just sits it on the table. And the guy's like, I'm starting to see the picture, but again, these individual components, it's not helping me. So the guy says, all right, dude, I got you. Let me just take all of these things I gathered for you and I'll mix them together and I'll make you some pancakes. Does that sound good? It's like, oh, hmm. You know, when you were giving me all the individual things in this moment, I didn't see the bigger picture. I didn't look for the bigger picture of what was going on. All I saw was what you were giving me at that moment. I didn't realize that all things work together for good. That's how you need to start viewing your trials. It doesn't seem joyous, but grievous. It doesn't feel good. Life sucks sometimes. But all things work together for good. You know what that good is? It's verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, God knows everyone. He formed us in the belly of the womb. And even before that, he knew us, the Bible says. He also did predestinate. Now look what the predestinated thing is. To be conformed to the what? Image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You know what that word conformed means? It means made to resemble. I love it. You know what else it means? Reduced to a likeness thereof. You guys have seen this, right? I would have brought this in practically, but all the Play-Doh we have is dried up. But imagine, yeah, imagine you have this. This is the image that you need to be in. But you yourself are this. Imagine you have this hole that is a triangle end and you are a square. You're a square trying to get into a triangle peg. So if I try to put this square into that triangle, is it going to go in? No, especially if it's a block. No, you know what it has to do, especially if it's a block and it's hardened? It needs to be softened. You know how you soften specifically Play-Doh? You need to put it through some heat. You need to warm it up. You need to get things a little hot in order to soften it because when it becomes softened, then it can become moldable. Or if the clay doesn't want to be soft and it just wants to stay hardened, you know what you have to do? The person who's wanting to conform it to the triangular image, you have to put pressure on it and you have to press it through that triangle hole. What's going to happen to the square as it's being pressed through the triangular extruder? All of this stuff right here, it's going to get shaved off. If you're the square, is that going to feel good? No. But at the end, you'll be conformed to the image of the desired effect. You have to be reduced. There are things in your life that you cannot bring forth glory to God for unless you are reduced, conformed to His image. It can only come through trials and testing. But in the end, not only will you have patience, but you'll be made more like Him. Has to happen that way. Sorry, I didn't write it.
If anything, it's proof positive that mankind didn't write this book, that God did, because why would man want to put himself and subject himself through that? No. It has to happen. It needs reduced in order to be conformed. Letter B. We'll finish here. You know what happens after that? The calm after the storm is where application takes place. If you're going through a storm right now, rest easy. Like we've looked at several times in the last couple weeks through outreach studies, through Sunday school, Mark 6, John, or yeah, Mark 6, John 6. After the storm, was there not a calm when Christ walked on the water? 1 Timothy 2.2, 2, I'd reference this verse. For kings, he's talking about prayer requests for kings and for all that are in authority. Why? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness, godliness and honesty. Note what a quiet and peaceable life is associated with. Godliness and honesty. A quiet and peaceable life does not mean no trials, no tribulation and isolation like I had thought it meant when I was in my own selfish thinking years ago. Oh, and by the way, you know who the king was at the time? Nero. We didn't talk about him in church history and how he crucified Christians all up and down Jerusalem until they ran out of wood. He was the king. And Paul said, you're saying, let's pray for kings. <laughs> and when he says quiet and peaceable life, it's saying that so we don't have to be on the run for our faith every single day of our lives. That's the quiet and peaceable life. Let us serve God in godliness and honesty and not constantly on the run. That's the desired effect. We have it good right now. It's the calm after the storm. That's where application takes place. Jump over to Romans chapter 12. All right, we're going to start over here with Carson. We're just going to read one verse at a time going down. I think we'll stop at Gibby. Verse 17. 12, 17? Yep. Okay. Uh, recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. Do you guys hear that? Look at it again, Elliot. Look at it. Read it again. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with everybody in here. As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with everyone in your house, in this youth ministry, this church, all men. If something you think is an issue needs dealt with, stew it over first. Because there are times in your life where you mentioning it to somebody, you bringing the scenario up or the situation causes more harm than good. If it's something that you can easily let go, let it go. Gosh, Verse 19. Dearly beloved, uh, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt be cold so Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Are these not all things that our Savior displayed, both in the Gospels and in your life? Yeah, because He's God in human flesh, and He's living inside of us, and He wants to make us like Him. It's godliness. These are the things that come afterwards. This is where application takes place. Okay, what did I just learn through the trial and the testing? What did I just learn through this storm? How do I apply it? 
Here's one way. Here's an application for you, especially as it pertains to people. Because most of our trials in our life come from people. 